Well, good morning. I'd like to echo the welcome that was made earlier by Brother Douglas to all of you, and especially our visitors. We're so thankful to have you here, and some of which we don't even consider a visitor, I don't believe. A, a welcome home, um, possibly. We're, we're you know, very excited to have Jonathan here with us, and uh, since him and Lee have come in, they haven't stopped smiling. We're certainly happy for them this morning. As Jonathan read from Hebrews this morning, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, that's going to be the, the bulk of our lesson coming from this passage. Now I invite you to get out your Bible, and I've tried my best to, to put a lot of the passages I'm going to use this morning up on the board, but I encourage you if you can to flip to those and, and, and to read along with us or at least jot them down so you can study them later because as I've, I've told you before, I'm, I'm prone to make mistake, and I, I would hope that you would check everything that I say. <clears throat> This passage, this passage here in Hebrews, it's a passage that I think can be easily overlooked. It can be easily forgotten about. I've read it several times, but I don't know if I've ever took the time to truly appreciate the words that are being said in this passage. And I believe it is important in in understanding the Scripture that we fully remember who it was written to and why this passage was written. This passage was written and estimated to have been around the years 60 to 65 A.D. Uh, That's what most scholars have put a date on it, somewhere in that time frame prior to 70 A.D. And it's written primarily to Jewish Christians, Uh, hence the name Hebrews. Um, When this book was written, it was written to people who were suffering real persecution. A persecution that was far greater than anything we see in this day. And it was written to people who could save themselves from this persecution if they would simply just blend back into a Jewish faith. Primarily, its purpose was to encourage them. It was to encourage Jewish Christians to remain steadfast in the faith that they had. And in doing so, it did this by showing the superiority of Christ and the new covenant over the old law. Now, I believe we need this message today. And I believe we need it now more than ever. I praise God that we don't serve under the persecutions that was going on in this first century. But the fact is, we're not guaranteed that we won't. God never guarantees us that the amenities that are offered in this country will always be there for us. In fact, He warns us just in contrast of that. Saying in 2 Timothy 3.12, If you want to live a godly life, you will suffer. I read this quote earlier this week, and it's in regards to the Supreme Court's rulings that they made on same-sex marriages. And it was a quote by a group called the Southern Evangelical Seminary. I have no idea who these people are, and I I can't vouch for anything else that they say, but I thought this quote was, was pretty good. They said, unless there is a great spiritual awakening in America, the battle for traditional marriage is over. Now, I... I don't agree 100% with that, that the battle is over. We were always called to fight this battle, and I will always have something to say over God's definition of marriage. But what they said next really sparked my interest. Now, the battle for religious freedom has begun. We've set a precedence in this country time and time again, beginning back with no-fault divorce. And the Supreme Court ruled that 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 was okay. So we know it doesn't agree with God's Word, but we don't care. This is going to be something that is okay in America. And then we see um, abortion, Roe versus Wade. Again, they said, we know this is not something that's in conjunction with God's Word, but 
separation of church and state, that's not our place. This is okay. And now today, same-sex marriage, it's okay. And it seems to be drawing farther and farther away from God. And I don't bring this up to discourage us. I bring this up to make the point that we must not give up. If things were to get harder than what they are today, we must be preparing ourselves to remain steadfast. To be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What I'm saying is to set ourselves. Have you ever watched a football game? I'm sure most of us in here have seen a football game. And the guards, those are the guys that stand in front of the quarterback and make sure nobody gets to the quarterback. And depending on who you're watching, they don't always do a great job at that. But their, their, their job is to attempt to protect the quarterback and to open holes for, for people to run through, uh, for the halfback, the fullback to run through and score. So what these men do, if you've ever watched them, and they get down and they set their feet and they plant themselves. And they're looking eye to eye at their opponent and they're saying, see this line right here? You're not coming across this line. I'm doing everything I can to keep you from crossing this line. That's what I'm saying to us this morning. We need to set ourselves. We need to get down. We need to dig in. We need to set our anchor. Are you preparing yourself for that? Have you been preparing yourself for that? <clears throat> Are you preparing yourself for a time when you might be called upon to choose between God and family? I'm sure many of us have done that already uh, this day, and that's a hard, hard decision to make. But are we preparing ourselves to do that? Are you preparing yourselves to, to, if you are called upon, to choose between God and the government? God and politically correct ideologies. Are you preparing yourselves, if you're called upon, to choose between God and your very own life? You might ask, well, I want to do that, but I don't quite know how. How do you do that? How do you prepare yourself for such a hard decision to make? It starts with examining what it is you are digging yourself into. What is it that you're setting yourself up against? Where is it your anchor is fastened? That is to say, do you know the credentials of who it is you serve? That will be the focus of our study this morning. This morning we are going to take a closer look at Jesus. And we're going to look at how in time past God spoke and in how He speaks in these last days. We're going to observe specifically how Jesus is qualified to be God's perfect spokesman and the foundation of our faith. Before we begin, I want to draw your attention, and I want to apologize too because I spent a great deal of time last night in a field getting water balloons launched at me and I've, my throat is closing up from that hay, I assume. Before we begin, I want to draw your attention to the first word of this, of this epistle. And sometimes this is called not the epistle to the Hebrews, but sometimes even the essay to the Hebrews because of the way it's worded. But notice this first word, God. God. This epistle starts off the same as the Gospel of John, the book of Genesis, and it is such a bold statement to kickstart this letter. God. You know, we bought, well, we didn't buy, my father-in-law got my, my oldest son, Ryder, a dirt bike. And he's been riding this dirt bike around lately. And to fire this dirt bike up, you have to kickstart the dirt bike. It doesn't have any switch to push, turn it on, as a lever. And, and Ryder has finally learned how to kickstart this dirt bike. And it started off with a little, meh, you know, a little push. Didn't do it. It wouldn't start it. And maybe you get a little bit more effort into it and give it a kind of a grunt. It still wouldn't start. It wasn't until he jumped up and put all his force behind that kick and to fire that thing up and to see his eyes light up when he did it himself and he fired it up. That's what this letter does to me. 
That's what this first word does to me. God. It is unapologetic. It is a dramatic statement that God is. And that fires me up. Do we have that same sort of drive in our conviction? When we discuss matters of religion with others, do we kind of give it a meh? Do we leave room for argument or suggestion of doubt? The writer here, and, and we, the identity of this writer, we, we don't know for certain, but this writer here, he sets an example for us. Confidence. Confidence in what we believe, and confidence that is based on the fact that God is. Though not on God alone, or not on the fact that God is alone, but also on the fact that God is personal. God is personal. How do we know this? Because God spoke. I can't have a personal relationship with an animal. I can't have a personal relationship with a tree or some force of nature. To some extent, even I can't have a personal relationship with with an infant child, with a baby. Why? Because all those things can't express to me their desires and their will. But I can have a personal relationship with God. I can know God personally. So let us never be guilty of depersonalizing God. Let us never make this error which would be spiritually fatal. You see, a personal God provides revelation. Through His spoken word, God reveals His love, His patience, mercy, and grace. He reveals His humility and His wrath, His glory and His power. And in Jeremiah 29.11, He reveals that He has a plan for us. Same way, a personal God, He provides regeneration. This is not possible if God were merely some cosmic force. If God were some force comparable to the natural laws, such as gravity, God would not be able to provide us with this regeneration that He does. And He provides, through this regeneration, He provides responsibility. Responsibility. If God is not a person, as some claim, then man is the highest form on heaven and earth. And if that were the case, who would, who would hold people accountable? Who would bring them to judgment? Through this delusion, we see so much sorrow of this world originates. So how refreshing is it? How refreshing to the soul are the opening words of Hebrews, which reveal that there is a God, there is a God who speaks, and He speaks to us. Let's start with this refreshment. And consider what is said regarding God's spokesman in time past. The expression, in time past, this refers to the period of time prior to the coming of Jesus. This is this time period that is described in the Old Testament between Genesis and Malachi. And in this time, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. The fathers would be the the ancestors of the Israelites. And the prophets would include great men such as, as Samuel and Elijah, Isaiah... Ezekiel, Daniel. In fact, this Hebrew word for prophet means one who boils over. And the fact is, these these men were inspired by God to speak His Word. 2 Peter 1, uh, verse 21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And we see that in various times and in different ways, God spoke. His revelation did not come all at once, but rather it came progressively. It came at different times over a long period of time, 
And his methods were, di- were varied as well. Excuse me. His methods changed. They were sometimes visions and sometimes dreams and sometimes symbols. So God has clearly revealed Himself as one who speaks. And what He revealed through His prophets in time past, the Old Testament is confirmed now both in inspiration and authority by the, uh, by the Hebrew writer as he affirms that it was not men who spoke these things, but rather God Himself. This is the same position that Jesus held when He would quote the Old Testament, as in Matthew 15.4, For God said, Honor your father and mother. Jesus held the same view. So in understanding this, that God spoke in these ways, let's look now at how God's, God's spokesman spoke in these last days. The expression, these last days, literally means, at the end of these days. This may be understood as referring to possibly the closing period of the Jewish age. You know, 70 AD is right around the corner. The destruction of Jerusalem and everything Jewish going with that. You know, the, the temple destroyed, all the records destroyed. But more than likely, this is talking about the period of the Christ. The period of His kingdom. The Old Testament often spoke of these last days. Um, Isaiah chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 2 and in verse 2, where we read, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Again, uh, another passage in in the Old Testament that talks about these these last days is Micah. Micah chapter 4. Get to Micah. (laughs) Micah chapter 4 and in verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow to it. As such is often a special reference to the age of the Messiah. In fact, the apostles, they they spoke of how this time of of the last days had been established in their day over in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, looking in verse 16 through 17. But this, is, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. This denotes the final phrase, uh, phase of history, brought on by the first coming of Christ and continuing until His second coming, coming and the consummation of all things. So we see in these last days, they're the days that we are living in now. The days that we are living in now, God has spoken to us by His Son. God has spoken once again, but again, note the contrast. In times past, it was through the prophets. And in these last days, it is by His Son. God has sent His Son to speak to us. And and as wonderful and as great as the prophets were, can they compare to God's own Son? There is no contrast, especially when we read on in this passage and we start to notice Jesus' credentials, if you will. The credentials of God's perfect spokesman, and they start here in verse 2. He is, Jesus is, the appointed heir of all things. This establishes Jesus' authority as the king of kings by right of inheritance. Classically and historically, kingly authority has always been established in this exact same way. 
And even today, we look at great fortunes, great empires, they're handed down through families. And even the, the, the most stablest of empires, they, they follow this same path. When we look at, at the thrones of today, uh, of worldly kings, they're handed down the same way, the same path, through inheritance. Christ, therefore, being the firstborn of all the world. In fact, He is the only begotten of God. It entitles Him as the heir of all things. So what does this conclude? All things. What does that include? Well, John 16 and verse 15 says, All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So he, he, that includes all that the Father has. John 5 verse 26 through 29 says, For just as the Father was light, or has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. So we see that Christ has been giving all things to include the authority to raise and to judge the dead. Matthew 28 and verse 18 talks about how Christ has been given the authority to rule on heaven and on earth. Now Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And Acts 2.36 talks about Christ's authority. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for, the cert- for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, Christ has authority. He has authority even now. The next credential that we see is Jesus... Is, been, is, is through Him, excuse me, is through whom God also made the worlds. Jesus is through whom He also made the worlds. Not, all in all, not only through the right of, of heir, we also see that Jesus, His credentials include the right of creation. What one's makes is His. And so we can assume as, as Christ has made us, we belong to Him. And along with all the worlds... Astronomers once estimated, at one point in time, astronomers estimated that the universe contained 12 quadrillion suns. 12 quadrillion suns. Now, for any of you math majors, you might know what that number is. I had to look up what 12 quadrillion suns would look like. One quadrillion is the number one with 15 zeros after it. And that's what was estimated at one time. To further shrink our thoughts of ourselves, let's consider this. Today... It is estimated that there are between two and four hundred billion suns, that's less than twelve quadrillion, but two to four hundred billion in our own galaxy alone. Those stars that you see at night, those are estimated to be about three thousand that we can see from any one side of the earth, and those are only the stars within our own galaxy. Now compound this with the fact that it is estimated there are hundreds of billions of galaxies. And we begin to see how staggering it is. All that Christ has created. And that's just it. What's at the center of all of this? At one point in time, we thought we were at the center of it. Or the sun, maybe, was at the center of it. Christ is at the center of it. He is the Creator. And thus, since He has created it, He is fit to be the Lord and Ruler of all that He has created, including us. This declaration is supported by passages such as Colossians 1 and verse 16, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers of authority or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. 
Or John 1.3, we talked about John earlier. All things are made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In the second verse alone, two credentials are given to Jesus of why He is worthy to be our King. Now as we go into verse 3, we are going to note five more credentials. The next one being that Jesus is the brightness of His glory. The brightness of God's glory. In Jesus, we see the very radiance of the glory of God. As John wrote in John 1.14, We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. When we behold Jesus, we see an extension of the glory of God. Again, this entitles Jesus to kingship based upon the very quality of His life. That is to say, if we could somehow create a test to qualify someone to be the universal ruler, being determined, both, or being determined by their personal traits, Christ would infinitely surpass all others. So Jesus is the brightness of His glory. Jesus is also the express image of God's person. This is to say He's an exact representation of God's being and character. Colossians 2 and verse 9 tells us, For in Him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Therefore, Jesus could say to Thomas, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. And from now on you know Him and have seen Him. That's in John 14.7. And then turning right around to Philip in John 14.9, He says, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. So again, another credential of Jesus is he, is made, he is the express image of God. But continuing on, we see Jesus is upholding all things by the word of His power. Not only is Christ the Creator, but Christ is also the sustainer of the universe. We looked at Colossians 1.16 a minute ago talking about He was the Creator, but now let's look at verse 17. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. To the human mind, we know 102 elements. These 102 elements uh, consist each of atoms. And each of these atoms consists of three types of particles. Now I'm going to try and get not too sciencey on you because I will lose myself. But each atom is, is made up of three parts. Protons, electrons, and neutrons. Okay, so these three parts are in the atom, and they could look kind of like if you picture a, 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 a diagram of our solar system. Our solar system, where you have the sun at the center, and everything revolves around the sun in our solar system. The atoms look a lot like that. They have a central nucleus. They have a center. And in that center, we see the protons and the neutrons. They are at the center of this atom. And around the atom, or around the center of this atom, we see electrons that rotate. Not only do they spin on an axis, just like our planets do, but they spin around the center. Now here's the amazing part. Everything that we know is made up of these atoms, even ourselves, but these atoms are spinning at 186,000 miles per second. Per second. That's approaching the speed of light. So the spinning of, the spinning of these atoms has been going on since creation. My question is, why? Why have they not been interrupted? Why have they not stopped? Our logical and inescapable conclusion is that not only create, did creation occur, 
But it was brought about according to the plan or the will of a person endowed with supreme intelligence and knowledge and the power to bring it about and the power to keep it running. Always and everywhere throughout the universe. The only logical reason, we talked about this the other day on Wednesday, logic goes right out the window in some of our arguments that we make. The only logical reason that we can give as to why an electron travels at the speed of light for thousands of years, and possibly billions more if the Lord allows, is that Christ has commanded it to. The same is true for the suns and the galaxies and ourselves. By His Word, the whole universe holds together. All He has to do is to say the Word, and it stops. Note well that this illustrates the power of His Word. Shall we not listen? Look over in Luke 6. Luke 6 and verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? We know He is Lord. Are we willing to do the things that He has said? When we understand the power, the power of His Word, everything that it controls, are we willing to do what He has said? This brings us to our next point. Jesus is also, by Himself, purged our sins. In March 30th, you know, July 4th, we have a pretty good idea what important happened on July 4th. Most of us can call that up pretty quickly. I don't know how many of you are historian buffs here, but March 30th, is there anybody that can tell me what happened on March 30th, particularly in 1867? I didn't think so. Me neither. March 30th, 1867 is the day that the U.S. purchased Alaska from Russia. And they purchased Alaska from Russia from a mind-bending $7.2 million in gold. It's not a lot of money in today's standards. That day, that was a huge amount of money that we purchased Alaska for. As Jim talked about earlier, we have been purchased. Far greater was the price that Christ paid for each of us. But here's the kick. Do you not remember? Christ created everything. Christ paid this purchase for His own creation. And it was more than just simply being bought. No, this is a reference to His death on the cross and to His role as our Redeemer. And that's the word, the word that Jim used this morning. It embodies redemption so much better than simply purchased. He rescued us. Redeeming carries with the idea of someone who is bought out of a terrible, terrible situation. Oftentimes it was used when someone would buy a slave away from a slave owner who treated them very bad, very poorly. Christ redeemed us, rescued us from a terrible, terrible situation. He did so much more than just simply purchase us with His blood. He purged our sins. And this theme, this theme remains prominent throughout this epistle. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore in all things He had to be made like His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest, in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation, we, we've talked about how that means a, a, a sacrifice that was given to appease the wrath of God. Likewise in Hebrews 9, this idea is still being carried forth. 
In verse 26, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of His self. And in verse 28, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. This makes Jesus king by right. Excuse me, I'm skipping ahead. All these things show, they show how Jesus has purged our sin, making Him king by right of purchase. And then Jesus also, we see, sat down at the right hand of God, the right hand of the majesty on high. This makes Jesus king by right of having taken the kingdom. Jesus did this when He ascended to heaven. Ephesians 1 verse 20 says, "...which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." Sitting at the right hand of God is a place of honor. But it's not just a place of honor. For Jesus, it's a place for which He reigns as King. Carried on in verse 21 of this same chapter. "...far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named..." Not only in this age, but also that which is to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church. It is true, Jesus, He is waiting for His enemies to be made His footstool. As Hebrews 10, we'll go ahead and turn to Hebrews 10, verse 12 through 13, talks about how He is waiting for the time when His enemies will made His footstool. But we must know that until that time comes, 1 Corinthians 15.25 tells us He is reigning. For He must reign till He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. All this is stating back to a prophecy made in Psalms. In Psalm 110, uh, verse 1 and 2, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Therefore, we see Jesus is our Lord. And He is our Lord lawfully. He is the lawful sovereign of all things given, uh, proved, excuse me, by His inheritance, by His creation, by personal excellence, by His divine right, by the rights of sustainment and the rights of purchase. This Jesus is truly the ruler over the kings of the earth. As Revelations 1.5 says. Now this sentence does not end in verse 3. The sentence carries on in the verse 4, talking about a declaration of how Jesus is superior over all the angels. And that's very profitable for us to study, but we're not going to study it today. What we have seen though in this lesson is God, and God is, and God is clearly a God who speaks. He makes His will known to mankind, and He speaks through His Son, how can one ever turn his back on Him? Especially when we consider Matthew 17, verse 5. Matthew 17, verse 5, in the, in the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when God makes this proclamation. While we were still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. That word here, we have, we have lost the meaning of that word here. We start to say, well, there's a difference between hearing and listening. There wasn't always. 
God said, hear Him. He didn't expect us just to hear the words that He said. He expected us to obey Him. To submit ourselves to Him as our authority and as our ruler. Are you hearing the words of God's beloved Son? Of God's perfect spokesman? Some of those words, like Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who believes not will be condemned. What about Revelations 2.10? Be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown of life. Words spoken by Jesus. <clears throat> if you have yet to be baptized for the remission of your sins, if you have yet to confess Jesus as the Son of God and committed yourself to an obedient life in His kingdom, you are not hearing God's Son. You are not heeding the words of God's spokesman. And the consequences of this action, they're dreadful. They're horrible. Throughout the farthest reaches of the universe. I read this, I read this quote too, and I, it just really struck with me. Throughout the farthest reaches of the universe, the natural creations, from huge galaxies to small atoms, they do His will. What an incredibly strange thing it is that in all the universe, man alone hesitates. Refusing to give full obedience. My encouragement to you this morning, as we open our songbooks, is that you don't hesitate. Is that you come forward today. You come now as we stand and sing.